do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. First John chapter 2, verses, we're going to start at verse 18. We have a bit of reading to do, but we'll make it. First John chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 18. We're going to work our way down. John says, children, it is the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be or might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, because you don't because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the father and the son. No one who denies the son has the father. Whoever confesses the son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You know, we're entering into the next half of the year. Believe it or not, this next month of July is like a second January to some people. It's a chance to start over or finish the next half of the year strong. It's time when people declare their commitment or devotion to accomplishing a certain goal. Many of us may commit to losing a certain amount of weight or enrolling in fall classes to complete a degree or a certification. And as exciting as it is to start this commitment, life comes with challenges. Challenges that ultimately test our level of commitment, our level of 
devotion. And so we may decide to commit to losing weight, but once we smell that sweet smell from the bakery, or once we drive past that fast food restaurant that we would typically drive through, we wonder if a quick snack would hurt anything. It's the challenges that ultimately reveal our level of commitment. And this letter to, written in 1 John is a letter written to challenge people, whether you are saved or unsaved or a believer or an unbeliever, it's a letter to challenge us to examine ourselves to see if we are really committed to the faith in these last days. And so as we unpack these verses of 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, you may hear some similarity from last week's message or the week before, but I believe one of those reasons is that John, in, John is so repetitive, and I, I believe one of those reasons is because he wants what he is writing to stick. He wants what he is saying to stick. He wants to make sure that we know, that we know, that we know where we stand when it comes to the faith in the end times. And so John wants us to know first that we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So we're living in the last days. And I know that when we hear this, this saying or this, these words, last days, our mind immediately goes to the Left Behind series. You know, we immediately start to pay attention to what's going on in Jerusalem and wars and technology. We think about the mark of the beast and microchips in our hands and every possible thing that could go wrong in the world when we hear this term last days. And there's nothing wrong with being on the lookout because scripture tells us as believers that we're supposed to be on the lookout for any type of sign of Christ's second coming. So there's nothing wrong with being on the lookout, but we must remember that this letter was written 2,000 years ago. John wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, and while John was writing this, he makes it known that even they were living in the last days. So that means we've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years. How is that possible? How is it possible that we've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years? How could both generations live in the last days 2,000 years apart? Was John wrong? Was Did he see all the chaos going on around him and think this has to be the end? Because, you know, a lot of people thought that. They thought this, this is the end with us. I got one amen. He, a lot of people thought that th it ends with us. Or did John have a broader view of the end times than others around him? You know, Jesus, again, he lived a sinless life. We know that. We know that he died on the cross. We know he bodily rose from the dead. And then he ascended to the Father in Acts chapter 1, right? And then in Acts chapter 2, just a few days later after Jesus ascended, the Spirit of God was poured out on Jesus' disciples. That was the moment. In that moment, Peter recognized that we were living in the last days. He says in Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, this is what Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And 
in the last days it shall be, this is what God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. In this moment of what we know as Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit of God was poured out upon Jesus' disciples, it not only fulfilled Old Testament scripture, but it confirmed that the times had changed. You know, we're still living in the last days, and we're still seeing the pouring out of God's Spirit upon His people, even today. You know, when you hear the surrendering of people surrendering their lives to Christ, that is the evidence of the Spirit of God being poured out. When you send missionaries to serve God's people all over the world, when, when we hear and we see children growing in the things of God because of godly parenting and because of children's ministry volunteers, we are seeing God's Spirit being poured out upon His people. When we celebrate someone's public declaration of faith through baptism, when we see the church at large growing and the local church multiplying, we are seeing the pouring out of God's Spirit. All of these are indicators that we are living in the last days. And the reason why I bring that up is because I want to encourage all believers that though we should be on the lookout, we should not only look out for the chaos, but even the success. We should not only look out for the turmoil, but even the growth of the Christian church. So we've been living in the last days since the ascension of Christ. So when you hear last days, you have two ways of looking at it. You have the last days that refers to the ascension of Christ, and then you have the last days that can be summed up in a word called eschaton. The eschaton, it covers the end of all things. It is the study of the last few years or the last months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, and seconds until Christ returns. We call it eschatology, but the eschaton. And so it's in this era that any prophecies that may not have been fulfilled will be fulfilled from the scriptures. It's in this era that we will see the literal destruction and the passing away of this world when Jesus Christ will reign as king of all. And so there's two kinds of end time. You have the eschaton, like I said, when Jesus will return and the literal world will end. And then you have the end times that's in reference to the ascension of Christ, where we all await his return. And so I would also like to add, I would also like to add when it comes down to the end times in reference to Christ's ascension, it's also an indicator that there is no more revelation or unfolding of God's plan. The fullness of God's plan and the revelation of who he is was completed through Jesus Christ. So this is what John is saying in, first, in his first chapter. John 1, verse 14, And the word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So when we saw Jesus, we saw the glory of God. When we saw Jesus, we saw the fullness of grace and truth. When we saw Jesus, we saw God the Father's plan of redemption and reconciliation. We saw the fulfillment of the law and the prophets when we saw Jesus. So there's nothing else in God's plan that has to be revealed to us for three reasons. 
And they all go hand in hand. The first reason, because again, it was all revealed through Jesus Christ, the Son. The second reason is because it's revealed through His Word, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. And then the third reason that goes hand in hand, it's none of our business. It's not our job to understand anything else that God has planned. And so when you hear someone say, I got this new revelation. When you hear someone say, I got something from God and you can't be proven in scripture, that's an indicator that it's false. We're living in the last days. The end is coming, but the end is already here. Verse 18 again, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, you know that it is the last hour. John wants us to know that Antichrist are among us. Antichrist are among us. He said, you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Notice how in verse, 10, verse 18, he doesn't say the Antichrist or an Antichrist. He just says Antichrist. So this means that this word is in reference to those who oppose Christ. Those who are in opposition of the gospel. When John wrote this letter, he was writing to a church of people that were familiar with these terms. They were familiar with last days. They were familiar with this word antichrist. And they understood that there may be an antichrist who will be used by God to perform his will to end this world by bringing chaos. But they also understood that there is a spirit of antichrist. People who will oppose and push against the things of Christ, push against the gospel, fight against and rebel against God. And so when you look at this word antichrist, John also wants us to know that they are in every generation. They are in every generation. When you look throughout history, you'll see there's many icons throughout history that are antichrist. They were icons that opposed the things of Scripture, which ultimately point to Christ. They were rebellious against God, whose ultimate goal was to redeem mankind through his son, Jesus Christ, making them anti-Christ. And so any enemy of the Israeli army in the Old Testament was anti-Christ. That means that they, just, they sought to destroy the nation that God would use to bring Christ into the world. Right? So many kings, many queens that had prophets killed who declared the coming of the Messiah, they were anti-Christ. When you look in the New Testament, King Herod, knowing that the Messiah, known as the king of the Jews, would be born during his reign, had every baby boy killed, hoping that death would find the Messiah. That is anti-Christ. And so not only do we see that there are antichrists in the scripture, but even in world history, even in U.S. history, emperors who had Christians killed, thrown in the Colosseum to be eaten by lions and tortured, were anti-Christ. Slave masters were anti-Christ. Dictators who put 
human beings in gas chambers were anti-Christ. People who hung and lynched others because of the color of their skin were anti-Christ. The world is packed with people who oppose the things of Christ. And John wants the church to be reminded that the Antichrist is not only coming, but the spirit of Antichrist has already come. They have existed in every generation. And this is some horrible stuff when you look throughout history and you hear about what people have done, but there's a reason. The next point, they serve Satan, the Antichrist. That's why there's so much chaos throughout every generation because their ultimate goal is to serve Satan, the Antichrist. So the first thing I want us to understand about Satan, Satan is real. Satan is a real being. He is a real existing spirit. He is not a superhero. He's not daredevil. He's not George Burns. He doesn't wear a suit. He does not have horns. He is a real existing spirit who at one point was an angel. An angel named Lucifer who led worship in heaven. However, he was arrogant, seeking to be equal with God, seeking to have the same honor and praise as God. But his arrogance has led to a rebellion that ultimately led to his expulsion from heaven. He was kicked out from heaven along with one third of the angels. And now he seeks to take revenge towards God by going against God's people. And so his goal is to keep people from hearing the gospel, damage the relationship between God and believers. He seeks to hinder God's people from being fully committed. Remember, I spoke about that word earlier, fully committed, fully devoted to God. So how does he do this? He does this through the temptations of this sinful world. Remember what we talked about last week. There's three desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires that make our flesh happy, putting ourselves first, the desires of the eyes, putting materialistic things first. Then you have the pride of life, feeling the need to boast in ourselves and our accomplishments. And at the end of the day, these worldly desires is what Satan uses to destroy God's creation because he knows he can't defeat God. And so the closest thing that he can get to God is through his creation, so he thinks. And so the root of someone who is antichrist is Satan, someone who pushes against Christ and the things of Christ and pursues the things of this world is rooted in a relationship with the Antichrist. Antichrist serve Satan. My next point, anti-Christians provide evidence. As I said earlier in the message, there are going to be some things that we hear from last week's message and the week before and the week before that because John wants this to stick. And so there may be some things I say that you may have already heard, but John wants it to stick. He says, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it may become plain that they all are not of us. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I want to focus on verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. He says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Then he says, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. You know, I've often heard people tell me about people that started living contrary to God's word. They were talking about people that may have what we call backslidden. And I'll hear things like, you know, that person is no longer saved. I'll hear, I'll hear things like, you know, that person used to be saved, but now they're not. But there's no one on the planet that used to be saved. These words used to be saved or kind of saved. John says they were never of us. John says when they left, it was because it would be made plain that they are not of us. So John is using verse 19 to separate those who are truly saved from those that simply profess it. The implication of this text is that if you are saved, you will continue. Those who are not saved will not. So we often think that someone is saved because they prayed the prayer. You know, they prayed the sinner's prayer. And so they're saved. You know, they lifted their hands and they cried during worship. So they must be saved. They tithe and they volunteer in the ministry. So they must be saved. But someone can do all these things and still be anti-Christ. Someone can do all these things and not be saved. And that means antichrist grow up in church. That means antichrist serve in the church. There are antichrists that grow up and become pastors and leaders in the church. And this is why John is saying that they are among us. Because they are people who attend church regularly and profess Christ, but have no relationship with him. They have no concern for God's will being put above their own desires. They have no desire to feast on God's word and live by it. And so this has led to false preaching, false doctrine. And this is how we got to prosperity preaching. Because we have ordained antichrist. Antichrist preach against the gospel with hopes to build a following. And so when they depart, when they leave with a following, they leave causing great damage and confusion in the body of Christ. And so this is why this letter was written, because John is writing during a time when people misinterpreted the gospel. They used the scriptures to justify their sin. And during this time, you know, people would often join these these little uh, small groups of Christians, these these fellowships of Christians. They would learn their ways and then eventually they would gain influence. And then they would preach something contrary to the gospel, which was in their heart all along. And because of their influence, when they would leave, people would follow. They would leave with great numbers. And so once they would leave, it would cause people that stayed to wonder, did we get it wrong? It would cause people to wonder if all of those people are leaving. Have we been preaching the right thing the whole time? 
Or is there something they know that we don't know? It reminds me of a preacher from the 70s and 80s. Ministry started around the 70s, went into the 80s, and by the 90s, he was a global phenomenon. Famous preacher, held yearly conferences. He laid down platforms for so many people that we hear of today. Some of the most influential preachers got their start from this man. Phenomenal leader, phenomenal preacher, phenomenal singer. At least he was articulate when he came. He was a phenomenal communicator. Thousands of people were impacted by this man's ministry. He could preach. He could sing. First, first decade of my life, I listened to all his CDs. He's incredible. But then around the early 2000s, this man felt that God had given him a new revelation. Remember what I said earlier? He got, felt like he got a new revelation that everyone on the planet is saved. No one is going to hell. Until this day, till this day, people are still following his teaching. There are pastors that condone teaching like this simply because they were influenced by him. This man, he linked on with presidents and politicians. He ate with renowned evangelists and celebrities. He oversaw 600 churches. He grew up in church. He was baptized. He was ordained. He was a seminary grad. He accomplished all these things but never believed the gospel. And people followed him. They admired him. They were influenced by him. What does that tell us? We cannot put all of our focus on the messenger. We cannot put all of our focus on the preacher. I think I'm a nice guy. You know, I, I'm not the best dresser in the world, but I don't look too bad. But at the end of the day, you cannot put all your focus on what I say. You have to find what I'm saying in Scripture. Pastor David is a wonderful guy. And I'm not going to say anything else because he's my supervisor. But at the end of the day, even what he says, you have to look at this through Scripture for yourself. Not because we're nice guys and handsome and great dressers. All glory to God. We cannot put all of our focus on the preacher. But what does the scripture say? Can you find what I'm saying in scripture? And the reason why so many people left with that man and the reason why so many people left with those preachers in John's time is because they were focused on being influenced by them and not what was said in Scripture. So people have a tendency to join us or join in the worship, learn our ways, worship, they gain influence, they preach something contrary, they depart. And as horrible as that looks, as horrible as it feels, it seems as if we're losing numbers, it seems as if we may lose influence, I want you to be encouraged because there's beauty in this departure. There's beauty in these departures because what we're seeing is an opportunity to see God purify the church. It's an opportunity to see God remove those who are rebellious against his will, pushing back against the gospel to clean out the body of Christ and separate the lie from the truth. And so anti-Christians deny the faith. And as I stated last week, there's a difference between someone who professes it and someone who is a true Christian. 
when someone who is simply professing it, you'll see how they justify their sin by trying to use scripture. Someone who is really a Christian will feel convicted because of what is read in the scripture. Anti-Christians preach against the faith. Many anti-Christians, they'll see Jesus as this enlightened teacher or this moral man, but not God in the flesh. They seek to deceive those who follow Christ. That preacher I talked about earlier who was very influential, he still makes videos today with an intent to persuade Christians that they're wrong. It's been over 20 years, and he's still making videos trying to tell Christians that you're wrong because his intent is to deceive. Anti-Christians serve Satan. Anti-Christians provide evidence. However, my next point, true Christians provide evidence. True Christians provide evidence. True Christians are devoted to the gospel. Verse 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. We often hear about people who pick and choose what scriptures they want to live by. We pick and choose what part of the sermon we want to listen to. But Christianity is an all-or-nothing religion. It requires our complete devotion or no devotion at all. And so when a real Christian receives Jesus as Lord, they strive to live according to the scriptures, whether it feels good or not. True Christians are devoted to the gospel. John goes on to say, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Verse 24, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life, eternal life. The gospel recognizes that God is holy and he's righteous. He made us in his image, made us in his likeness, but out of arrogance, we rebelled against God. Our rebellion caused sin to enter into the world, which separated us from a holy and righteous God, putting us in the place to deserve nothing but his wrath. But instead of giving us his wrath, he gave us his son. Jesus, God, the son came to this earth, lived a sinless life, that we couldn't live. He took the wrath of the Father upon himself by dying on the cross for our sins. He was buried. But three days later, he bodily rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. So when your faith is in Christ, you are saved from the penalty of sin and will live with Christ for eternity. Though sin may have influence, it will no longer have dominion. And so once we believe and receive Jesus, God the Holy Spirit fills us guides us in the way of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit convicts us. It brings us back on track when we sin. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what Christians live by. John says in verse 24 and 25, he says, 
let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. That word abide is very important. It's a word of firm commitment or devotion. Jesus promised eternal life to all who are firm and committed to him. But John is saying, John is saying, if the truth of the gospel abides in you, if the scripture abides in you, then you will abide in the Father and in the Son. So in other words, in a nutshell, true Christians are committed to Christ. If you are not committed to Christ, it might be because you're not a Christian. First John, he says later on in verse 26, he says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Christians True Christians anticipate the end times. True Christians anticipate the end times. As I stated last week, this letter is a reminder to Christians and a warning to unbelievers. He says in verse 26 and 27 that there will be false teachers that will come to deceive. But because you know the truth and because you seek to grow in Christ, you can live by sound doctrine. You can live in confidence in what you know is true. And when you know that what you believe is true, you can look forward to Christ's return. You can anticipate the second coming of Christ. When you practice the truth, when you live a repentant life, when we are convicted of sin, we are declaring our faith in Jesus. We are declaring that we are part of a blood-washed body of believers. Jesus is coming back. And those who believe in him will live eternally. But those who are not in Christ, anti-Christ, anti-Christians, will see condemnation. When you look at your life, is it the life of a Christian or the life of of an antichrist. When you look at the life of a Christian, the life of an antichrist, where have you landed? Are you someone who seeks to grow in the things of Christ? Are you someone who does what makes you feel good? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe that he is the only way to the Father, or do you only see him as a moral good teacher, an enlightened one? This letter it's not only written to us as believers to stay on the lookout for false teachers, but it's a word 
of encouragement. This chaos is temporary. That's the word of encouragement. The chaos of this world is temporary. So be encouraged. Be encouraged while you resist the temptation of this world. Be encouraged while we're fighting the urge to sin. Because Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And everything in this world will be wiped away. And all those true Christians, all those not only who profess their faith, but abide in Christ and abide in the Son, made a firm commitment to Christ, will live in the presence of God. They will sit at the feet of Jesus with no distractions. Anybody looking forward to that day? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how great you are. We thank you that you are sinless and you're perfect, you're holy, and you're righteous. And we thank you that you chose us, broken, flawed people, to gather and worship you and exalt your name. We thank you for this opportunity of self-examination. We pray, Lord, that we would examine ourselves daily. Anything that's not like you, we pray that the fire of God would burn it out so that we would live like Jesus. We thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers us and washes our sins. We thank you, Lord, that you forgave us and you forgive us. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that convicts us and gets us back on track. We pray and we confess our dependency upon him, that we would lean not to our own understanding, but lean on the understanding, the wisdom, and the strength of the Holy Spirit as we go from day to day. We give you praise. We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing and what you're getting ready to do. In Jesus' name.